substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and political podcast. It's our current events episode. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Philip Nanestad. How are you doing, Philip? Good morning. Uh, hope everyone is well. Weakish to go to the election. Uh, another another tick from the doomsday clock. Exciting times all around, right? Wow, yeah, really getting to that nihilism early. Um, I, I love to see it. And we're joined by returning guests, Stephanie Rogers. How are you doing? Yoda, I'm... Uh, emotionally and physically exhausted and really want everyone to get out and vote. Fantastic. And Lamia Mum, how you doing? Welcome back. You're right, everyone. Great to be here. And I haven't voted, so I'm thinking about that a lot. <laughs> I, that almost makes it sound like you're tossing a coin as to whether you will vote or not. Uh, I mean, I will vote, but I'm not sure who I should vote for. <laughs> All right. Maybe by the end of this uh, yeah. episode, um you'll have a, a clearer idea as we work through the issues of the campaign. As Philip said, we've got about a week to go. This has been one of the more confusing um, and worrying and interesting campaigns, I think, that I remember since I became aware of politics. It's been really full on, and it feels like it's been going for much, much longer than the campaign period. And it really feels like it began last year in many of the the ways that we talk about campaigning, just in terms of the media footprint of the different political parties, um, especially from the right, the way that the media has been talking about it as well. They've been covering kind of election-based stuff since last year. I think the first thing I remember that seemed like campaign kind of relevant was when the rumours started, um, which at the time seemed to be unfounded about Jacinda Ardern stepping down. And that was maybe in October last year, which is just too long. It's too long for for me. Uh, and I'm a freak, let alone normal human beings. How have uh, each of you felt about this campaign season? Well, I'm a first-time candidate, so it's been just an absolute whirlwind for me. Uh, the last couple of weeks in particular have been when we've had all the candidate meetings, which is obviously where I shine as a former high school third speaker in debate club. Um, (laughs) Give me a microphone and a hall full of people and some nasty questions from conservative bigots about sex ed, and I am in my happy place. It's um, been a time, but just exhausting um, and quite uh, stressful on the family, obviously not being home most evenings. I think week we had eight events in four days and... My partner had to do all the heavy lifting of childcare that week, and that's something that we have had good, mature conversations about how we're managing our energy levels. But also kind of interesting, it means I haven't really engaged with the leaders' debates. I haven't really engaged with the bigger national picture because I've been really focused on Oh, How Do You and on the kind of questions that are coming up at Oh, How Do You meetings and the different dynamics. Obviously, we've got a really fun race with Greg O'Connor as our incumbent and Nicola Willis going so hard for the seat. Um, which has made it fun. Um, and I'm I'm glad to almost be the other, out the other side of it. But, of course, now everything kind of quietens down for this last week of advanced voting, and I'm a bit at a loss of what to do with myself. So I'm just doing more knitting projects. How about you, Lamia? Yeah. Um, so for me, it wasn't last October. For me, it's been since Luxon became leader, because I feel like 
they've sort of anointed him as the future PM in November or, or whatever of 2021 when he became leader. And the media has been sort of talking about him being a potential prime minister and a successor to John Key since then. And sort of... Just before then, even. like Even I before. Mean, that that think, narrative has been going for yeah, years so and years. He, he, I feel like he'd, he'd been almost anointed before he even got elected, right? So they've picked this candidate. This candidate is the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is a natural successor to John Key. They've been talking about him being a potential PM for a really long time. It almost felt felt like to me from the outside that the powers that be had already decided and no other person within the National Caucus even had a chance. There was, you know, there was not even an opportunity. And the only reason he didn't become leader right away was because he'd just become an MP and it would be ridiculous. And so this this conversation around Luxon being prime minister made me feel like the campaign had started, you know, at the beginning of 2021, when they sort of, uh, sorry, beginning of 2022, when they pitted her against Jacinda, when Jacinda was still PM. And it felt almost like campaign-like for me at the time. And I think that I think that has been troubling me and worrying me in the way his image has been shaped as someone who is sort of like the natural conclusion from John Key having nine years, right? Like this is what mm. we know and love and <clears throat> it's what feels comfortable. You can't quite have a beer with him, but you know, that that's what we all know. So I think that's what really has been troubling me. So now when we're at this juncture when we're, I don't know, uh, I don't even know how many days out we are from the election, it just, it feels like everybody is really exhausted because we're sort of like, yeah, just get it done and over with. We get it. Like you want him to be PM, right? Um, but a lot has happened in the last, I want to say 48, 72 hours, right? You know, there's been a def- def- definite change in the mood. I definitely want to talk about their policy because so far this election has been focused on the people, the two Chris's, right? We haven't had any in-depth policy discussions. And what I've learned is that, you know, people mostly don't care too much about the policy, right? They do care about the people. But now that we've delved into the policy because, you know, there's questions about how will we pay for it, we know that that Luxon doesn't really have a lot to back him up, except for the fact that he used to be the former CEO of Air New Zealand. That's really all he has. He he doesn't have a lot of time in parliament. He doesn't have a parliamentary record. He hasn't done anything. He's not particularly, you know, um, great on his feet when asked questions. He makes policy on mm-hmm. the cuff. So, yeah, I feel a bit exhausted. And I feel like um, I didn't get everything I would have had Luxon not been anointed so quickly and for such a short amount of time. So, yeah. Do you feel um, like you've got to know him yet, though? Yeah, I think I think you get to know him and then you like him even less. I, shouldn't <laughs> say that. I think that it's, I, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound really mean, but it's not hard to get to know him because he's not a substantive person. So he doesn't have a lot to mm-hmm. offer. So what little he has to offer, you do get to know him. And, and there's not much depth to it. And that's really mean. But in his life, he's never had to bring depth to the table. He's he is a corporate marketing guy. And it drives me crazy that they call him a businessman because he's never run a business. He's just worked in a corporation, which, you know, I say this as someone who also is a marketing gal who works in a giant corporation, right? So I, he is he is me when he started out, right? Like I'm not an executive, but we've had the same career trajectory. When I look at his LinkedIn, I'm like, that's my CV. So when they call him a businessman, I get very annoyed because no one would ever call me a businesswoman. And I don't have any business acumen. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how to run a business. And 
you know, he went on the debate and he said, like, I worked on mergers and acquisitions. And I was like, that's just completely made up. Like, what merger did Unilever do that you worked on? You were a marketing person. Marketing people don't work on mergers. Like, give us an example. So, you know, it's just, yeah. Uh, So I've gotten to know him because I feel like he's a little bit of me. And I'm like, yeah, that's not great. (laughs) (laughs) I would not put that part part of me forward if I was running for office. That's a really good that's a really good point. It's essentially the Scomo um kind of playlist that they're trying to like rejig. Um, but instead of even being as honest as like Scotty from marketing, they're like, you can't relate to this guy because he's too competent. He's hyper competent, right? He's a numbers, he just he's a self-described numbers guy, but he gets numbers wrong every time he announces a policy. Every time he's questioned on it, he has to like back down and change his mind at the last minute. It's pretty like, you know, viewed from from outside any other election, you'd have to say it was a pretty terribly run national campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really makes you go, oh, maybe Stephen Joyce did know what he was doing for some of those years, right? Because, <laughs> like, God, God it's bad. I know. But look at the incompetence on display, right? It's really impressive. Like, I don't know, if you go back to the key years, I think, imagining a campaign like this, you'd go, oh, ridiculous. Like, who are these bloody amateurs coming in here and messing up the the National Party's only only marginally dishonest and incompetent record for the most part. Yeah. It's just it really is. It really is. First is tragedy, then is farce, isn't it? It's. I mean, I guess it depends on your viewpoint, right? Like, <laughs> I, it's full comedy for me. Yeah, it's been interesting to see like how much the National Party and the ACT Party, to to an extent as well, seem to have relied on what they assumed was going to be an easy ride. And as soon as the the screws have kind of been twisted at all, like barely, barely tightened. It's just collapsed. Let, let's talk about that poll this week uh, to kick things off on the current events. 5% plus drop for ACT. I don't think we've ever seen a party, especially a minor party, like lose that much in what, just less than a month? That's that's full on. I mean, yeah, the, the Greens, that happened to the Greens a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean that five percent. That percentage of your uh of your party vote is a pretty significant uh fall, especially considering no like obvious scandal, right? Normally you'd see that around like a major figure saying mm. something dumb about funding to a private school, hypothetically, or you know, something something that may potentially uh conflict with the values of your base. Um but ACT is still basically playing to the like psychopathic farmers and finance bros uh crowd and it's not working for them anymore. So my only theory, and this is entirely based on the shifts of one poll, which, you know, can all be noise, especially when we're talking about the weirdo fringe parties, is that a bunch of the extreme fringe anti-vax, anti-mandate, anti-World Health Organization types have seen the series of ACT candidates getting exposed for holding exactly the views they want to vote for and David Seymour going, oh, no, 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 that's not us. Like David Seymour's very happy to dog whistle to the extreme, but he will not own it and he will not acknowledge why so many of his candidates have those fringe views. And maybe that's making some people on the fringe go, oh, we thought you were our guy, but you're not our guy. Maybe I will go vote for Liz Gunn or Alfred Naro or, or Matt Peters. King or, or Winston Peters. Yeah, like he definitely seems like our guy. He's about as coherent as we are. So, D- David Seymour, I think about two weeks ago, was on um, Bob McCoskey's podcast, um, <gasps> and it was really combative. Like they did not get on at all. Um, and Bob McCoskey was basically 
saying like you know my my people our people are voting for you like where's our you know what are you, you going to do for us and david seymour just kept being like no that's wrong you're misinterpreting our views doing the kind of libertarian debate bro shtick and bob mccoskey was like calling him up on specifics being like well you know where's where's our kind of pound of flesh if you want and it was like that you know it's not working for them they can't they can't play both sides of that coin during mm. a campaign in the way that maybe it seemed like they could a year ago mm. and it gets more exposed when you have like the minor party debates where you know he's under the spotlight for a good concerted period of time and he can't argue that it was just a sound bite or something taken out of context or it's just on Radio New Zealand Checkpoint and none of them listen to Radio New Zealand Checkpoint because it's communist state media, that kind of thing. And it turns out he's not as funny or sharp um, as everyone's made him out to be for six years. He's he's clay foot um, to a large extent. He, As soon as he has to go off script, he struggles. Um, if anyone claps back at him, he, yeah, he just freezes up. It was, it's been really enlightening to see some of those minor party debates where uh, the parties of the left have really shone. Yeah, I think I want to add to Stephanie's comment about the crazy people in his caucus or the candidates. I think conversely, you know, um, some of the finance bros want to distance themselves from, you know, the crazy people, right? Because I think they look at that and they think this is not what we stand for, right? And then um, I don't know, you know, how many people are watching those debates, Um but they're definitely watching the commentary around the debates that we're having on social, right? And I think that shapes a lot of the views as well, because if you watch the debates, yes, he's not very good. Yes, he's very clumsy. So I think that if if he was your guy, you wouldn't feel super confident, right? You wouldn't feel great about yourselves. And people like to be on the winning team. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to be on the team that's that's delivering the zingers and shutting people down. And David Seymour is not good at that at all. And so I think that's part of the reason why maybe some of those votes are shifting. It does feel like, though, you would think those votes would shift back to national, but they're going to New Zealand first a little bit. Like, it almost feels like they're trading votes with each other, right? Because um, national has stayed pretty much where where they were. Which is very interesting because that makes me wonder who these people are that are shifting between ACT and New Zealand First or some of the minor parties. And you have to kind of believe they are the most fringest of the fringe folks, right? Like the other thing that I want to say about David Seymour is that I think that the last three years he's had this huge caucus and everyone called him disciplined and there was no scandal, but it was because no one was actively looking for it, right? Like they actively suppressed any kind of scandal coming from ACT, right? So now we've got like a month before the election when the media is starting to be like, okay, we need more clicks. Let's look into what what these guys are up to. And when you sort of open it up, you see the crazies come out. And I think that's kind of contributed to their slow, a little bit of a slow decline, right? From their huge heights. And I think people are also noticing that they're not going to be this incredible change because they're still having to rely on national. You're still going to have a Luxon government, right? Um, and so some of the things that he's been saying, you you just can't implement, um, especially like we'll give confidence, not supply. Like that was a ridiculous thing to say. Um, so he, he can't be taken seriously. So I think some of the collapse is coming from the fringe, but also from sort of the finance bro, if you will, that think that he's just very libertarian, but you know, his crazies sort of pull him down a little bit. So I think, yeah, it's interesting to see. I do feel like there is a feeling of wanting change in the electorate 
And so at the end of the day, even if polls are sort of shifting a little bit here and there, I still feel like the mood of the country is still, the two Chris's are broadly the same. Let's try a different Chris. That's my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, kind of how it's felt for a lot of this. I, I think we've had a pretty consistent line on this podcast that it's the right wing parties to lose this election. Every kind of thing kind of points to, you know, national taking it out in some sense. You know, there, there are pathways to victory for Labour and the left. But on, on the information and data we have, it, it's still not looking super likely. National has dropped again in this poll, though, and we've seen a little bit of a bump for Labour, which is like the first time in two months, three months, longer. And this is probably the most consistent polling that the Greens have ever had. Do we think that Hipkins is going to turn it around in the last week? He's He's been pretty like... I mean, he's required to say, yes, we're, we're going to do it last the last week and uh, see a lot of shift. And, you know, that has happened in previous elections. Um, 2020, I think, is an outlier. We don't really want to use that as a significant data point um, in the way that Hepkins tried to um, being interviewed yesterday. Where he's like, oh, look at 2020. There was like a 10% swing or something. And you're like, bro, that's <laughs> good, good try. Um, I mean, he has to get people out to vote. You know, it's fine. What do we mm-hmm. think? I think it's going to be about turnout. I think it's going to be, can the Labour machine get out their voters? Can the Greens get out their voters? Can people get the motivation? There's so much discussion online about how a lot of the doom and gloom narrative really serves to suppress turnout. And I think that demonstrates how important turnout is going to be. Um, So I was actually, yesterday I was sitting at a table uh, covered in Green Party and Tamitha Paul for Wellington Central signs up on the... um, Vic Uni campus, but there actually wasn't a lot happening on campus besides us being there with stickers, mostly handing them out to people who'd already voted green, uh, which was great. But yeah, it's going to come down to who actually shows up to vote. Uh, John Campbell also has a fucking amazing piece um, today about voting and basically if if you don't show up to vote, wealthy people get to make all the decisions, which I just... I love his energy, this election. It's so great. So all the boomers and Gen Zs who read him uh, will definitely get out to vote. Yeah, and hopefully they get their kids out to vote. And hopefully, (laughs) like, I've definitely had that at some of our candidate meetings where um, there's kind of an even split between people who say they're definitely going to get their kids out to vote and people who say they're party voting green because their kids keep yelling at them to party vote green. And both of those are working out fine for me. Bullying works, team. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I like... I think this is very clear from late last year, um, and we've mentioned that a number of times. There's accentation that started their triple the vote campaign. feels like it started really late, uh, but glad that it's happening at all. I've said in numerous places now, I, I don't think it's going to be... I mean, the Labour machine is what it is. I mean, obviously, it's going to do some turnout. If Labour come out on top of this election, it's, it's nothing to do with them, in my opinion. It, mm. It'll be what the Greens have done on the ground, which is fucking immense, like, this is it's just been such a huge campaign for them, just with the amount of door knocking calls. I don't think it's ever even been close to this. And then there's this really interesting shift in the last 12 months with left wing social media content creators on Instagram and on TikTok who are reaching millions of people. Labor certainly aren't, <laughs> you know, like it's going to be kind of soft media stuff. And I don't think we have a really clear idea of what that looks like. Conversely, the same could be happening on the right. It's, 
a lot of the time you go into stuff and you're like, oh, I know exactly how this is going to fall. But I think we just have less and less idea at the moment. And the people who are doing the data on this stuff and the people who are commentating and are, you know, meant to do effective reporting on how the electorate's looking and how and what the outcomes are meant to be are two or three steps behind on where and how to get that data. I mean, there's a couple there's a couple of interesting data points that like contradict the establishment media vibes narrative that like it's all over and there's nothing to see here, like go home, shut your eyes vibes that you get from, you know, mainstream kind of pundits. And that's the or last I checked at least, early voting was obviously far down on twenty twenty, but it was up on twenty seventeen, which was Jacinda Mania hype, right? Like you would think that if early voting was gonna be any election, it would be the one where splashed across all the headlines was like this woman's about to come in and save us like you know remember the the feelings that everyone had in 2017 about the excitement and like capital p politics like vote 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 that kind of energy um which we're not getting this time but we are getting more early voting so what's that about like where are these voters coming from and also the viewers on the the viewership on the debates has been surprisingly high which you know where are these people coming from if, if no one's interested and if people have already made up their minds and if it's a foregone conclusion then why are 1.4 million people at prime time watching a political debate? Like that's that's huge in New Zealand numbers. Mm. So it just doesn't like. I think there's there's more to it than is being told by the self congratulatory self congratulatory kind of gallery journos saying, "Oh, we all know. You know, we all have lunch together, and we've all decided that which way the selection is going to fall." And you know, that's interesting, right? Mm. I wanted to pick up on the point um, Lamia was making about. Uh, Luxon basically being anointed as this guy's the next John Key, he's the next PM, because I think we've also seen the exact same thing happen with Winston and New Zealand First. Like, we're suddenly talking about kingmakers again, and we're suddenly treating it as, oh, isn't it kind of funny Winston went on Q&A and basically threatened Jack Tame's job because he couldn't answer policy questions. I'm Lol, so how droll. Time. It's the way we have treated Winston as just this funny uncle when he actually creates genuine havoc and in a way that's quite undemocratic and having worked in the the 2017 to 2020 Labour Greens, New Zealand First, non-coalition government, I can say, like, there's no strategy to it. There's no underlying principles. There's just what what is Winston's whim today? And that's not good for government. I mean, there's a small part of me that's like, off you go, Luxon, uh, you deal with him now. Uh, you can have that fun. But I think people will still interpret it as, oh, he's the handbrake. He's the moderating influence. And it's just, it, it's just a disaster for our public services and having any coherent sense of policy and parliament functioning correctly. Because the number of times things would get all the way through to the point of select committee or third reading or something. And suddenly New Zealand First goes, nah, no, nah, we're actually not voting for it. You've done all this work to compromise with us and find a moderate position, but actually we're just going to throw a spanner in the works and then we're going to tell our fans that it's because we care so much about whatever. I find it deeply frustrating and he's done nothing this election to warrant the level of attention and indulgence he's had. And so we've ended up in the self-fulfilling prophecy again where he's going to get 5-6% and bring in a whole bunch of people who've had even less scrutiny. I don't even know who's on their list compared to the kind of scrutiny we've had of ACT Party weirdo candidates. They're um, weirder. They're worse in New Zealand first, almost certainly. I, I just assume so. I was going to say, isn't that just sort of symptomatic of the generation he represents, though? Because that is who the boomers are, right? They're 
chaos makers for the sake of it. Not all of them, obviously. I have to disclaim, put the disclaimer of not all boomers. But we're in this pickle that we are in because we've had decades of this particular generation being like, everything is going to be fine. Climate change isn't really real. You know, we need to have like uh, constant growth, year on year profits, and it's going to be fine. There's always going to be just more and more and more and more growth, right? Like that's the generation that has created the environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, they are also the generation that's funding this election. All of the donations, most of them are coming from wealthy boomer generation, right? Um, and and they're also the owners of our media, right? They, they own everything. Like none of us are actually have any kind of like material economic money power in this election, like not millennials, definitely not Gen Z. What you do see from millennials and Gen Z and maybe also Gen X as well is this idea that we understand that we don't have that power, but we do have the voting power. We do have the conversation power. We can be on social media. We can talk to our friends. Um, we do have that power. The problem is, is that I think I want to talk about the turnout is that that power is very spongy, right? Like I just don't, you, you can, you can calculate exactly how much money national has in their coffers. You can't calculate the conversation Gen Z's are having in the TikToks they're watching necessarily, right? Like mm -hmm. we can see views, but we don't know what's going on in our heads, right? I am a pretty lefty lefty and and, and so you can kind of guess who I sh I would be voting for it. But even I'm sort of being like, well, what's the strategic thing in my electorate, right? Like, what is, how do I get the left block the biggest power, right? Me, one little person sitting in one little electorate is thinking <laughs> that, right? Um, Because I don't have a million dollars to donate. If I did, that's what I would be do doing, right? Like, and so I think Winston being put in this position, part of it is is sort of so that like, these people can have their clicks and their revenues because that's what generates interest, right? If it was really just between the national and labor, I just don't think we're getting the clicks. Like I was talking to um, my husband who is from America, who doesn't really, you know, know all the parties and doesn't know a lot about MMP. So I have to like explain it to him. And I was telling him how the Greens have the most excellent policy that I've ever seen in an election, right? In yeah, terms of the comprehensiveness of it, how much it covers. But you wouldn't know that by looking at the media. You wouldn't know that, that there are actually solutions to the problems we're facing, like income inequality, like the cost of living crisis, like climate change. You know, we actually, there are real evidence-based solutions out there. You would, the way they're talking about it, you would think that, oh, how do we ever solve these problems? There's, I guess we'll never know. Like that's the environment we're working in, right? But we actually do know, we will know, right? And so that's the really frustrating part. And I think for the generations that come after the boomers, we do know how to solve these problems, but the boomers have created this narrative that like, there's not much that can be done really, you know? Mm. And so that what that's what prevails, I think. And so I think that's the disappointing thing about this election is that we still, we really still can't grasp that power back. And what really makes me sad is, uh, you know, as someone who's like lived in the U.S., I can't help but compare to the U.S. And you have like a president in the U.S. who is still, it's like from, he's from the silent generation practically, not even really boomers, right? He's not. Um, but <laughs> it's it's kind of, it's it's depressing that, you know, we don't have the money that it takes to actually be have these conversations in you know mainstream media and so then you have this issue where the media has anointed 
a party or a side already. And we're having to work so hard through these alternative streams, right? Like through TikTok or social to be like, hey, it's not a done deal, right? And we just have to work so much harder so it doesn't come through. But I do want to, I didn't realize that 1.4 million people had had tuned into the debates. I think that is a really interesting data point. I think that that does goes to show that there are people out there that are saying, you can't just tell us one person is going to win because they got $5 million, $6 million in donations or $9 million in donations, right? I still get to vote, right? I still get to decide. Um, and I think you are seeing sort of this empowerment of people on the ground, which is which means that I don't think the election is going to be a done deal. I think it is going to be very close. Um, and I don't think it's going to be so easy for National to come up with a a coalition with New Zealand First and Act. And I I think we underestimate how much David Seymour and Winston Peters hate each other. And it came through in the debates. They absolutely loathe each other. So it's been one of the best parts of the coverage. Yeah. Honestly, is actually getting to see the the honesty of that. Yeah. So and I I I don't I think that we're slowly getting an awakening to MMP that it's not just Labour and National. Um, there are other parties and you do have to work with other parties and we do have to vote strategically to figure out how to get the best outcome. And I think people are realizing that even if the boomers refuse to and they want to hold on to first past the post, I think the generations after them are not. Um, so what I want to say is that maybe this election won't go the way we want it to, but there will be a slow <clears throat> you know, understanding of MMP. And I do think that the tides are slowly turning. Yeah, um, it's, and the it's... greens, the greens uh, numbers do prove that, in my opinion. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up. Sorry, this is just an opening for me to have a bit of a rant about Labour. So please uh, indulge me. It's I think one of the greatest lost opportunities of the past six years is that Labour has quite willfully refused to shift the political discourse leftwards in Aotearoa, and so now. Part of the reason I think we can see a lot of disengagement and disillusionment in this election is because our options are national, we'll keep 90% of the good stuff you liked, but also tax cuts. And then Labour is like, well, we can't really do much of anything. We'll, We'll do free dental for under 30s and we'll constantly emphasize that, you know, good dental care when you're young is really helpful. And it's like, okay, great. We we could do free dental for all. That's actually quite feasible. That's actually part of the thing where you actually have a wealth tax or have a capital gains tax and increase government revenue, and then you can spend it on more things. But the refrain from Labour is so often we cannot do better. We cannot go further. Uh, The policies we're offering are simply the best you're going to get. And anyone else is dreaming Um, And we're going to rule out anything that anyone else wants to do. How can we be surprised then if people don't turn out, if people don't think there's a viable alternative? So, hey, I might as well get those tax cuts, which up until this week, I thought was going to give my family $250 a week. Like, come on, guys, you're the Labour Party. You could have done so much work, especially under Jacinda Ardern. They had so much political capital to shift the conversation and to redefine politics, to redefine what welfare means, to redefine what fair taxes means. It's not just that they avoided doing it. They refused to do it and have spent six years telling the rest of us that we're idiots for thinking that anything alternative was possible. So that's just my little party rant. (laughs) This is why, like, if Labour salvaged something here, they should be getting no credit. And any serious political analyst should be looking at it and say, no, they got fucking lucky that 
their political partners, ostensible political partners, dragged them over the fucking line because they've done everything they can. Like, I, I think it's been a constant refrain of this election for anyone, you know, seriously watching it, that it seems like Labour are intentionally trying to lose up until maybe a week ago. It's been incredibly frustrating. But then, as you say, you go back to the last six years. Um, we talk about Winston as being a handbrake of the 2017 government. What the fuck was 2020? Hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, like, that's the problem. That's the problem, right? There is like, we've talked about this since the they got a majority is that it is going to be hard to explain away problems after three years of being able to do anything you want, anything you want in our like constitutionally unburdened system. You know, one house, you have a majority, you can do anything like you have unbridled power, basically. Um, you're the, you know, the Jafar genie of this, uh, <laughs> this fucking system. And yeah, how do you explain anything, right? Every other party can come to the next election and say, this is what we would do. And anything you say, any change you want to make, people are going to go, you've had three years, buddy. Like, why wasn't this the case two years ago, one year ago, three years ago? And that's a legitimate question when you're used to having um, conditions put on that by an agreement, a coalition of kinds. And we had a conversation last week that was around like my kind of incredulity that there are still people surprised that Labour isn't fighting for them. Um, and like Carl made quite a good point that until this election, I guess, like, how do you know, right? Like maybe... Maybe people have been, you know, behind the scenes, as politicians love to say, like, I've been fighting for you behind the scenes. It's like, okay, well, you know, show me, show me some proof in this pudding. But who knows? Maybe before this term, Chris Hipkins had been like going to Winston Peters and like challenging him to fisticuffs until he agreed to some kind of like, you know, freedom for whatever working class uh, dreams and ambitions that he secretly wanted. We didn't see any sign of that. But, Hipkins, working yeah, class hero. I know, right? But there are presumably people who like think that that's the case. It's the only way to explain the the sudden surprise on Labour Party people's hearts. But there aren't two. Like basically, it comes down to there aren't two visions, right? There, there's a, a multipolarity of visions. We're an MMP. It's a complex system, and that's okay. Like we're going to land on some fudge after the election, like we do every election. That's a mix of different people's kind of visions and dreams. And the problem last election is that that didn't happen and that people went, oh, this is what you want, right? Like, this is what the Labour Party stands for and wants is is this system because otherwise you would have changed something by now. And that's a really hard narrative to push back on. Yeah, I, I do want to push back on that, though. And I'm not a Labour defender, even though I worked for them. But I do want to say that I think I am mad at them for one reason and not mad at them for a second reason. And I'll just go through them quickly. One is, yes, they did have this like unbridled power. They could have done whatever they wanted. Um, and why didn't they do more? I think the excuse that I've heard from friends of mine who are leftists and who defend labor is that, well, they didn't get voted in by the do whatever you can people. They got voted in by them plus a bunch of centrists in their electorates, right? And they they got too drunk on winning all those electorate seats, right? So there's that that's one school of thoughts. And and maybe when when you know, in 2021, right after they'd won the election, they were like, good, we can hold on to this. And they didn't realize they couldn't, right, quickly enough. The thing that actually makes me mad about labor, yes, they could have done more and and we needed them to do more, you know, left-wing stuff. They, we needed them to pull the center left. I, I agree with all of that. Don't get me wrong. Like, instead of pulling national to the left, which we had the perfect environment to do so, they let ACT move national to the right and then labor just kind of followed when they didn't have to because they had all that political power right so so i'm with you guys on that what really makes me mad is that they have done a lot and i don't want to be sort of this like 
parliamentary geek who says like the legislative process is so complicated and long and it takes a long time <laughs> to pass legislation and get get it through all the committees and Stephanie already knows this so I'm not going to lecture her obviously but you know getting passing legislation through the house and getting it out it does you have to prioritize it does take some time right you can't just say I, I want to pass this and that and it just happens and they've done you know, um, you know, from fair pay to abortion to, you know, all the stuff on housing, there are some really, really good meaty things that they have accomplished. Nobody has talked about that. I've watched so many of the debates. Why didn't Chris Hipkins come out and talk about, you know, their, how they've sort of made the housing market more accessible to Kiwis, right? Like, we had record numbers of first-time buyers entering the market while they were in power. We didn't talk about that at all. We didn't talk about all of the healthy home stuff, the stuff that they have done for renters. Granted, Greens have a better renter policy than Labor does, but the things that have happened would have never happened under National. They didn't mm-hmm. talk about that. Um, and I know COVID is such a touchy subject. I know we didn't just talk about that, but I just cannot get over the fact that they won in 2020 because New Zealanders were going to concerts and restaurants while the rest of the world was watching their loved ones in body bags. I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but as someone who was here for the first level four lockdown and then had to be in fucking Texas and, you know, not go to the emergency room when I needed to go to the emergency room because I was so terrified that I wouldn't actually get care and I would get COVID and die in 2020. That is a situation I was in. I just, I... I think that they should have owned it. They should have owned their COVID success. They should have owned their legislative successes. They should have owned the things that they have done, right? And also as someone who's just spawned a child, not six weeks ago, I just want to say like some of their policies around the 20 hours free ECE for starting at two years old, that's that's big. Like I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about that, right? And anyone who has a young kid under the age of three is like, shit, I now have all this free childcare. Um, and and that's a huge, that's way more than $25 a week that you're going to get under national. I just want to point that out. And that is something they should have been harping on. It didn't come up in one of the debates. Like, you know, I've never been a parent before. I was always a childless dink person that didn't give a shit. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I did give a shit. But like, all of a sudden, I'm thinking about it, the lens of being like, is my child going to live to see a, an actual real vegetable? Like, or... You know, like, I, I am genuinely worried that they're not, you know, at my age, they won't be eating actual real food anymore because of, of the climate crisis. Like, as someone who's looking at it through that lens, you know, and I'm wondering if my child will ever get to make the decision to whether to have a child or not. Um, I just think that there are things that they've done that have been very great, and they didn't tout that, right? So when Philip says, like, they had three years to do whatever, yes, they didn't do whatever, but they did do a lot, and they they just did not brag about it. And you know National would have. You know if if this has been a national government, they would have talked about how great they were, how amazing they were, how much of a steady hand they were, how they shepherded us to the worst crisis the whole world had ever seen. And, you know, they saved your grandma and your great-grandma and your aunt and your sister who's, you know, disabled. Like, they didn't do any of that, right? Like, they just had this such a lost opportunity for bragging rights for labor. That is what frustrates me more than, you know, they didn't do more, right? Um, and so I think I think that's what makes me really sad. And it's just they're so afraid, and I'm not just going to say it, they're just so afraid of the 5% of people that decided that Jacinda was, you know, Satan incarnate, you know, on earth, 
they're so afraid of those people that they forgot that, you know, Jacinda actually did bring a different kind of politics. Um, and she did try to do something different. And, you know, we should give her some credit for the things that she has done. And, and that makes me sound like a labor apologist, but Get off I, the it podcast. just. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just it just it just really angers me is that when we do make some advancements because we the left gets so little chance to do so that we don't then go and brag about it. So sorry about this long rant. Um, I think that was a really missed opportunity, and I think it it drives me crazy that in the leaders' debate, the the two Chris's answered all the rapid fire questions exactly the fucking same way, mm-hmm. even though Chris Hipkins is like, I voted for cannabis um decriminalization, like. You voted for that and then you don't have like some sort of uh, a policy or something to stand on. Like you are the leader of the Labour Party. Just say something or do something to differentiate yourself from this like corporate hoe that's running against you. Right. Like it, it just and I say this as a corporate hoe, like I just where is the differentiating factor? Right. Um, and it just it drove me crazy that that we are talking about it in terms of picking between two Chris's when there's more depth behind one of the Chris and we just never heard it right like um and and so I think that's going to be the the lasting failure of this election campaign so I want to just completely agree because I'm a comms nerd so for me it's kind of uniting the two points a labor could have done more in tangible terms but also they could have communicated it better. And sometimes when I'm criticizing them for not doing enough, that's what I mean. Like, you're completely right. They won all these seats that they never thought they were going to win because Jacinda was amazing and National was crapping itself. But their idea of how we hold on to that is, so now we appeal to all of those National Party voters and we just lean in hard to what they want and we just assume that our base will keep showing up for us because, you know, who else are they going to vote for? Instead of seeing that there was a real opportunity here to drag those centrists, those swing voters, um, those National Party people who really like Jacinda, drag them leftwards. Like, Labour has consistently refused, except for the beginnings of the COVID response, they've refused to use good progressive communication strategies to shift people's perceptions. So... We had, you know, the the team of five million rhetoric, which obviously, um, shout out to my uh, Global Greens comrades, pissed off a lot of New Zealanders living overseas. Um, are we not part of the team? Um, but it was still, we had this moment of beautiful, collective, progressive public health. We're all in it together. We're going to do this stuff together. We're going to go hard, go early. I had a woman I do pole dancing with just deliver that talking point to me in a vacuum. She's not a political nerd, but she had absorbed that message. And we saw the power of that. And then, frankly, uh, Chris Hipkins takes over as minister in charge of the COVID response. And suddenly we're talking about the personal responsibility to get vaccinated. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you feeding a narrative framework that only makes people a couple of years down the road go, yeah, but Christopher Luxon's going to give me tax cuts. Like they've missed that. And they've, they've refused, like you mentioned abortion, Lamia, they have refused to own abortion as actually a really important, solid issue where they made change people have been fighting for for 50 years and they could have built a narrative around 
reproductive justice and personal freedoms in a collective community focused kind of politic and instead they just kind of went oh oh yeah we did that um please don't pay attention to it because angry people will send us booties in the mail again possibly the day i got angriest when i was working at parliament was the day that the fundies literally sent knitted booties to every mp to make a point about abortion i was like you could have sent this to an actual child who needs warm socks. How dare you? Um, side note. But yeah, it's for me, it's also about the narrative that they've refused to build. And then they wonder why people swing back to national. It's like, because you've done nothing to cement your achievements or to tell a story about how politics can be different. And I've just spent two weeks of my life at candidate meetings in Oharu, which is very Pākehā, very middle class, very public service. But I make these points about how we all need to look out for each other and we have collective duties to each other and that's the role of the state. I had a very angry question from an ACT Party candidate about the wealth tax and what gives you the right to tax wealthy people and I was like well it's kind of how our government works and we all chip in to support each other and there's just nodding all the way across the room. And I'm like, hey, Jacinda, Chris, maybe if you'd been saying this routinely and regularly and emphasizing it for the past six years, as well as talking about the actual achievements you have got through, maybe we wouldn't be in this position where people don't see a difference between the two Chris's. Can I, I, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, can I just say that when we as a country, when we come together to dunk on other countries, what are the things do we, what, what do we point out? We point out things like you don't pay 18, you don't get an $18,000 bill at the hospital when you give birth, like you do in America. H- how does that happen? We all pay taxes, right? We all agree that healthcare should be free. You should be able to go to the hospital and not get a bill afterwards, right? Um, the the And I'm going to go back to the COVID response thing. Yes, people don't like the idea of government intervention but they love the outcomes when government does intervene. We do love the feel goodness that we get from accomplishing something as a country, right? Um, I I did not have to move back to New Zealand. Uh, the abortion was the like number one reason I moved back because the discussion I had was if we were to have a child and something happened to me, I did not believe that I would get care in Texas, that I would be forced to carry a pregnancy and potentially either die or be left in a state where I couldn't have children anymore, which is something that is happening to women in Texas and elsewhere in the US, right? And so they think that abortion is a niche issue, but like a lot of people can have babies, like, you know, 40, 50% of the population can get pregnant and give birth, right? Like it's a huge issue for people who can, and you can die from it. And, you know, I had you know, when you experience it, you realize how close you are to like your body just being completely mangled. And I think Stephanie knows it too, because she's given birth. And so yeah. I I just, you know, and, and I think both of us have had ourselves cut open to do so. So it's like, you know, it's not just people think of pregnancy as this like natural thing that just kind of happens. And it really is not. And I just can't stress that mm-hmm. enough. It is a fucking terrifying experience. Oh, um, yeah. And, 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 and we should be able to make that decision as, as to whether we can go through this terrifying experiences or not. And Christopher Luxon should not be making those decisions for us, right? Like he, sh- I, I, and his values have no place in that, right? So this this was a big winning moment for me and Labor together. Like together we won on that point, right? And they never made that point, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And and I just want to go back to the, the healthcare thing. 
there are all these videos on TikTok where people go around asking like British people, how how much do you think it costs to get like um, a Panadol at the hospital, right? Or paracetamol at the hospital. And they'd be like, it's free. And it's like, no, it's like $36 in, in the US if if you get two, you know, two paracetamols. And I think we, and that applies here. Like if you get Panadol at the hospital, you don't pay for it, right? We feel good about that. We all agree that that is a good thing, right? And you get so, a lot better drugs at the hospital for free. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I just think that like as a country, we may be squeamish when someone says, hey, I'm sorry, but like the millionaires will are going to have to pay like five cents on the dollar or two cents on the dollar, right? We might get a little bit squeamish, but we love the outcomes. Like I know <laughs> people love not paying that $5 for their prescription. They do. And and I know it came a little bit late, but even in the last two months, people are loving it. And when they have to go back and pay those $5 again, they're not going to love it, right? Um, and so I think that as a country, it is your job as the Labor Party or the Greens to convince us that we love these beautiful outcomes of us being healthy, happy, and living in a safe, beautiful country, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, like little things, like when you go for a tramp, you know, the fact that we have uh, an agency or a government agency that makes sure that we can go on these beautiful walks, right? Like someone had to pay for that. It didn't just magically appear, right? Um, or the, the, the things that we take for granted, you know, like uh, parks and um, stuff that we essentially pay taxes for, right? That just happens, right? I think that that it is the job of a left-wing party to talk about the 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 role that government plays because Right-wingers never will because their entire ethos is government shouldn't exist, right? So you can't really rely on them to ever really have good policies that come from the government, right? And so I think that like labor really just didn't realize what their responsibilities were. And they do have an added responsibility that I don't really expect from national, right? To talk about the things that they have done and why you should care about a government that, you know, delivers services to you. Um, by having this sort of collective pool called taxes, right? It was their job to prove that taxes aren't bad. They had three years to do that. And and I'm just very disappointed that we didn't get that. And we just have to hope that Labour are lucky enough um, to have people in the social media space, like just now, actually communicating that. Yeah. There's been so much good content out there um, if you're heading up uh, the different platforms, but where people are just significantly more articulate than you know these political parties, the um, the big funders, uh, or the media at communicating these things effectively. Like they're far more savvy. It's a, it's incredible to me the amount of resource um, behind the big institutions and their inability to do this effectively compared to like some person with a phone, you know, and, and that's it, and and an understanding. Um, of how to communicate it's i don't know if yeah. it's a, i don't know if it's a, um an ideological distinction or like a a competence distinction but i i definitely feel less um sympathetic towards the leadership of the labor party i think i don't think that they're trying to communicate a message that they're failing to i think they don't have the the message that we would like them to like there are very low ranked labor party candidates and mps who are much better messengers for like a more popular populist message like Ibrahim in central Wellington is really good Sarah Pellet in Ilam Ilam is like is a really good communicator of of their government's wins like it's not like they don't know right 
Um, I think that the kind of kitchen table leadership group, Chris Hipkins, like in particular, is, doesn't want to talk about that stuff because he he feels like he still has to appeal to those two three percent National Party polar voters at the moment who he wants to get back. Like that's all he's thinking about. So it's not and, gonna... and the gallery and the gallery, right? That's a hundred percent it. Anyone and who wants to appeal to the gallery is just the saddest fuck, eh? But that's their that's their entire field of vision, right? So it is like. I don't think it's a competence thing. I don't. I don't think if the if the Labour Party had a million more dollars in comms funding that they would change their strategy. They would. You would just hear more of the same bland shit that we've been hearing for six months. It's a, a strategic decision, right? It is. I reckon. Well, let's. We've got uh, just a little bit of time left. I did want to talk about the one big kind of political fuck up this week. It's actually a fuck up from uh, months ago. Uh, it just hasn't got the coverage really until now, and that's the National Party maybe doing one of the biggest lies to the electorate uh, that I can remember um, and being caught out for it during a campaign. Uh, so if you haven't caught this uh, in the news yet, it has had some pretty significant coverage, which is fantastic because it's pretty important. Uh, and that is the National Party intentionally misrepresenting their tax plan by sometimes saying that New Zealand families would get up to $250 a fortnight um, in tax cuts and sometimes forgetting to say up to, um, and talking about the average family getting $250 a fortnight in tax cuts. This really took off when uh, a journalist uh, read some Council of Trade Unions analysis of the policy, which said only about 3,000 households would hit the upper limit of this. They approached the National Party for a right of reply on the story they were writing, and the National somebody, um, and probably Chris Bishop, um, as the campaign manager, made the decision to break with uh, journalistic uh, political communication traditions. And instead of responding to the journalist, sent out a press release uh, claiming Labour were doing dirty politics. And this is a huge, huge, like, no-no. It not only spits in the face of the relationship with the media, it was just outright wrong. And within 24 hours of that, they had to come out and say, oh, these numbers are correct. Uh, we made a mistake. And then within 24 hours of that, Luxon was doing stand-ups where he made the same mistake again uh, while apologizing uh, they did it in the first place. Do we think, I mean, what do we think about this? Is is this something that could make a significant difference? Can I just say something? I saw a, a tweet this morning that said the sort of centrist liberal ideology is giving you know, kudos to all ideas as the same when they should be doing it to people, right? So I just want to say, there's this idea that nationals tax cut as an economic policy just has to be taken as is, as face value, as any economic policy from Labor, Greens, Act, whatever, right? Like, we don't need to do any kind of deep dive examination of their numbers, right? Because both sides, right? And I think we tend to conflate, you know, giving people same level of respect to giving ideas the same level of respect. So that's when you get this idea that, you know, taxing a few wealthy um, offshore people to pay for this $250 tax cut to 3,000 families is the same as a wealth tax to pay for dental or uh, basic income for our students. It's not, it's not the same, right? One of them is costed and has numbers behind it. 
the other one isn't, right? And it is the media's job to do that examination. You don't get to call yourself the fourth fucking estate and not do your job, right? Like, um, you they don't get voted in, right? We don't get to vote for them, um, but they get to call themselves the fourth estate. Then they need to step up and be the eyes and ears for us. And that was a huge fail, I think, um, of the gallery who I've been who I just criticized, right? Um, because it was their job to go through the numbers. These people go into budget lockups, right? They get to see things before anyone else. They know to do these calculations. They shouldn't have to rely on CTU to do them for do it for them, right? Or they can get their own like people to come and and actually do the analysis and then tell the public, hey, three thousand people are gonna get it. You're gonna only get ten dollars and fifty cents. You're also going to lose ECE coverage. You're also going to lose $5 free prescription. Uh, you're also going to lose the public transportation. And then this is what the actual number for you is going to look like. Instead, and they did this at the leaders debate, they said, you're wrong on the $250, but also your GST of fruits and vegetables is not really going to make a difference without acknowledging that there's all these other policies that are going to make a difference, right? They're comparing policy to policy that they they're not apples to apples at all right you have to look at their entire economic package versus their entire economic package and so to answer your question Kyle I don't know what the ramifications is but I will say the media really dropped the ball on this and it shouldn't have been the CTU's job and it shouldn't have been you know 10 days before the election when voting had already started overseas and, and elsewhere right it should have been a long time before they had had this policy for you know a few weeks right we had a long time to go through it we should have had this information. They should be dragged for it. Uh, uh, and instead, we get these sort of sound bites like, I disagree with Goldman Sachs. I disagree. And then that is that that is like the sort of, you know, uh, correct position or the position of record when it's not just because you disagree doesn't make it true. Like, hey, um, so we found out that like the sky is blue. Christopher Luxon, I disagree. Well, guys, you know, the sky could be blue or it could be green. Who knows? You make the decision like that. That's really ridiculous. Right. We know the sky is blue. Right. And so I think that I think that's really the really frustrating thing that like sums up the the campaign and the media's role in this campaign. Like they do a reasonably good job on reporting things, but they're not good at analyzing things and giving us sort of here's what the impact is for this party versus this party. And we need someone to do that. And we don't have anyone to do that because if the Council of Trade Unions do it, then it's the unions doing it, right? If Goldman Sachs does it, it's sort of like, oh, well, they're the bankers, right? Like we need someone who can actually give us, and that is the job of the media. Subscribe to one 200. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's sort of like, we need someone that we can, t whose word you can take and say, hey, this is an unbiased person, you know, that this that is giving us the hard facts and data and I can make a decision for my family. Um, if I really do want that $10 tax cut over all these public services that we're getting. So so we didn't get that. And and we're too afraid to get that because I guess that would mean that, you know, we'd have to really examine the green policy and they will not do that. Uh, we just do not have anyone in the mainstream media who will actually examine our policies and talk about the impact on people's lives. Instead, we have these sort of like personality clashes of like, you know, what's your favorite beach and what book are you reading? Which is important to know, but God, like I literally- I would argue it's not important to know. <laughs> you know, may maybe it is important for some people, but it's sort of like there are families out there whose kids have to leave school and go to work and work from like 5 to 2 a.m. And you're asking the person who can change that, 
what their favorite beach is. Like, who the fuck gives a fucking fuck? Sorry, I'm just really still so mad about that, right? Like, um, we have 16-year-olds who are working at 10, 11, 2 a.m., you know, when they should be in school. And that is like a national failure. Um, have you thought this- about um, making a whole education campaign going after those kids and their parents, though, um, and trying to uh, blame truancy on on them? Yeah, exactly. And they want to find parents if their kids don't make it to school because they're too sleepy because they've been working all night. I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. like, what what the hell? Um, and so, and that this is all related to their tax cut, by the way, right? Because because of this tax cut, we cannot fund these things, right? We cannot make sure that families can eat and kids can go to school, right? And so, but no one's examining that. And so, again, I, elections are really just um, disheartening for me because it never goes the way I want them to go. But um, fingers crossed. Think- fingers crossed. But but this was a huge failure, and I think the media is kind of treating it like, oh, oopsie-daisy, and it's not an oopsie-daisy. It's actually a massive failure because this is the one big policy that National Party actually announced. Um, and then they they didn't have anything to back it up, and we now know it's completely empty. And uh, a lie, and, and, and a, a series and, and of a lies. Lie. I, I'd like someone to tell me, like, why is it okay for the National Party to have a wealth tax to pay for a tax cut, you know, wealth tax on wealthy offshore individuals, but it's not okay for anyone else to have that, right? Like, why have they created this narrative that there's any other way to pay for things except for taxing people who have the money? Like, I, I just want us to have an honest conversation about where the money will come from and how we pay for these services that we need to make the country move forward. But it's okay for National to like, you know, come up with these like bonkers numbers about people who are going to buy $2 million houses, which just does not exist. And then they're going to give you a $10 tax cut and they call it like fortnightly $25 and they just jiggery pokery numbers and jiggery pokery words. And we all have to just swallow it. And I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm a reasonable person, but this entire policy is made up. It's bullshit. Um, we know it's bullshit. The media know it's bullshit. All the left wing parties know it's bullshit. And I think people on the ground know it's bullshit, but we just never had the proof until like 10 days before the election. Rant over. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Good rant. Good rant. Anyone else feelings about the scam? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty clear since since day one to any kind of like critical observer that like, you know, announcing a number that a couple is going to get per fortnight. There's a reason you present uh, numbers in that context, right? Because no one's going to do that mental uh, quartering before they start thinking about their personal finances. Um, yeah, it, it was like, you know, dishonest from day one and totally agree with Vami's point that like, this is really on the media. Like if national can lie and get away with it, they'll keep lying. That's the structure of our like political society. And we're trying to get through to voters here. We're not trying to win the like morality Olympics, right? They're going to do what they can get away with. And it shouldn't be up to the Labour Party and even more so shouldn't be up to the fucking CTU, right? Like this is not on their list of things they'd like to be spending their election doing. You know, other political parties shouldn't have to be fact checking each other. That's that's why we have a fourth estate. That's why we have the media. So, yeah, it's absolute like failure of uh, their accountability. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be presented as such, but it, it really is like any high profile journalist should have who announced this should have run some maths like use a calculator (laughs) it's not that complicated not the national uh tax calculator though because they had to change that as well because it was lying to the people using it but you know you'd think someone would have some ability some data journalist would have some uh you know 20 minutes up their sleeve to run some numbers but i think like what it really shows is that like people don't vote for 
national because they are the like quote unquote business party or the party of fiscal responsibility. They vote for them because they think they're that thing. And the vibe is much more important than the numbers, right? We can like pretend that spreadsheets is what excites people as much as we want, but no election that has that been the case. Like, you know, John Key was better at quote unquote better at numbers than Christopher Luxon, but these guys aren't like mathematicians. And if they were, they wouldn't win elections. Like it's a, it's a vibes based uh, marketing competition. And that's why you can get the to f- circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. That's why we can have someone with basically no credentials as like a, an economist or somebody who understands markets and understands kind of like fiscal balance sheets and all this, all this kind of stuff, government spending. These people have no fucking idea about it, right? They have like a couple of analysts and comms people behind them telling them what to say. And they, they remember lines and say them they're performers. Sometimes get a Reagan in, just get a, get an actor, get like an (laughs) undisguised kind of actor and to just parrot the lines that the NZI give them and they'll do a better job than Christopher Luxon. Right? Yeah. I, and I just want to say like, there's no one who can present the data as, so it's not okay for us to tax 0.7% of the people to pay for things. If that's not okay, but somehow all of us, all of us have to give up $5 free pr- prescription. We have to give up the childcare costs. We have to give up public transportation so that 3000 households can get $250. Like don't forget cutting 15,000 uh, public service jobs and, and 15,000 public. And, and so like, so all these people are going to be out of work, which means they're not going to be buying sandwiches and, and coffees, uh, which means, you know, local businesses will suffer. All of us have to suffer so that 3000 families can get $250, which then they'll have to go back and spend on ECE, and they have to spend it on prescription. They have to spend it on dental. And like no one, there's nobody out there who can present this information. Uh, to me, that is just like a ridiculous indictment of our society and the way we've set up politics, right? Maybe this is not a conversation for that, but we can't go every election cycle with this sort of like, oh, well, we don't really know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. We have 30, 40, 50 years of data to show us what's going to happen when you vote certain way. So, you know, and, and then, well, Winston Peters is going to be the kingmaker. But like labor has ruled him out. Like how is he the king? Like these, these stupid ass headlines that make no sense um, designed to just like make us feel like there's this big competition going on. And, you know, like, yeah, but when it's not, it's, you're going to lose a whole bunch of stuff so, and you're going to get this $20 off. Great. Awesome. Like, I think the only good thing that came out of it is when Grant Robertson referred to it as a Briscoe sale, because we all know what that feels like. So, yeah. Yeah, it's mm. very disappointing. I'm very mad about it. I'm very angry about it, um, as you can tell. Yeah, I think it just all comes down to a fundamental, it's the vibes, um, a fundamental refusal to actually deal with real, tangible issues right i don't think it would matter what numbers national put in their tax plan i think the the narrative of any election is national's going to offer tax cuts and labor's going to offer slightly increased public services and act are going to come out with something balmy and the greens are going to come out with policies that everyone is going to agree are the correct policies in about 10 years time and within that the detail kind of gets lost because it's just what funny thing did Winston say? Oh, National promised their tax cuts. Oh, Labour promised a slightly left of centre public service policy. It all just becomes the game 
and the actual impact on real people's lives. I mean, that's why, again, I'm going to plug the John Campbell piece um, from this morning on uh, One News because he's actually talking about real things, like real things that matter in real people's lives. And we get so wrapped up. Like a, another example from the campaign trail for me was the day that the economic figures came out that showed that technically we weren't in recession because we had 0% growth instead of minus 0.4%. And I'm at a candidates meeting and Greg O'Connor from Labour is just thundering. See, we weren't in recession as though that means everything's fine. And then Nicola Willis from National comes back with a different, well, okay, technically we weren't in recession, but what about, and I can't remember if it was like the OCR or the current account deficit or other technical economic things that no one understands, but it just proved how meaningless the discussion was. It's like, what does that mean for families? What does, I think we were at a, a retirement village. So what does that mean for these elders who are here? What does it mean for their transport or their health care or the conditions of this aged care facility that we're mm -hmm. all standing in? It was just, no, it was about yelling about whose spreadsheet had line go up. And it, I, I basically said that. I basically got up after both of them and was like, "Yeah, so did line go up? Did line not go up? I, I don't, I don't care. Can young people afford to buy a home? That's what I care about. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people care about. And I just wish that we had more focus on the politicians, um, like my fabulous co-leaders James and Marma, who actually say stuff like that instead of yelling about spreadsheets. Yeah, and this is something we've been yammering on about on the podcast all year in regards to the election is like we just needed any significant level of reporting on what the outcomes of these policies are going to be instead of the usual commentating on the theatre or on the horse race, just people uh, in the media screaming out about who was ahead or like who fucked up or who failed a gotcha. Like what what are your jobs anymore, political gallery? What What is your role in this society? Is it just to fucking put masks over things um, and, and direct the people on stage? Like, if so, just fuck off. Like, yeah, but this is, they also do this at budget time, right? Like, the whole narrative is, uh, you know, what's in it for you, the individual, right? What do you get under this budget? Instead of realizing that we live in a society and we just kind of all have to take care of each other. And I saw this on Twitter when I posted the National and Greens calculator. There were many people who were saying I actually get more out of the national calculator, but I will not be voting for them because mm -hmm. so many people are going to miss out. That is a real sentiment. That is a real vibe, right? Like, why are we capitalizing on that? So instead of saying at budget or at election, what are you going to get out of this you, this person, which you can't speak to 5 million individuals, the conversation should be, what are we going to get out of this as a society? What is our country going to look like? five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, what is our impact on the sort of world stage, right? Um, I remember in the leaders debate, James Shaw said, you know, we can't just not say that like New Zealand can't, you know, contribute to the whole climate change discussion because that would, we're the size of Houston or Los Angeles. And, and if they all said we're opting out because we're not big enough, then everyone would be opting out, right? Like that is the point, right? You can't just say, you know, what, 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 how many dollars am I getting in tax cuts, right? It has to be what public services are we sacrificing so that 3,000 people can get $200? Or what public services are we sacrificing so that, you know, so-and-so can still have their yacht, you know, in the Auckland Harbor, right? Like, why aren't we asking if if you have a 0.7% of people getting a wealth tax and they, they all leave, leave New Zealand, where are they going? And what is the situation in that country, Right. 
what is the tax situation in Australia, UK, US, right? Like people are just going to leave. Where are they going to go? Like there's, we only have this one circle to live in, like this one globe, right? There's nowhere else to go, right? But like you can't. So the conversation just gets diluted down to, we have two Chris's forgetting all the minor parties, even though we live in an MMP situation, it gets diluted down to what's in it for you. You're going to get $10, $20 a week, which like makes no difference. Like a takeaway curry is $23.99 right now. Incredible um, that that was Labor's whole fucking slogan, right? Yeah. In it for, in it for you. Like, in it for you. Oh, yeah. For who? Me? Or 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 the student just like across the uh, road there, right? Who can't afford to like actually go to their classes because they have to have like three side jobs right like um is this the kind of society you want to live in like up until right before the moment that I had a child I was always for like better education for children even when I was a selfish little dink right is because I knew that at some point I want to live in a society where the kids actually have good education that I had access to right just for the sake of it, not because it was going to be any benefit to me if your kid went to school. I wanted your kid to go to school because I didn't want to live in a society where kids didn't go to school, right? And I know people agree with me on this, and but we never talk about it. It's sort of like, well, Lamia, you don't have a child, so why would you care what the ECE policy is? And why would you care what uni students are up to? You're no longer at university. I used to be at university. I know what it's like to have two side jobs, right? And I don't want that for anyone else. Please talk about that. Um, but no, we can't talk about that. So, and I think that will keep happening election after election. Let's not let's not think that in 2026, this is also not going to be, this is going to be happening. And this forum can't be the only forum where we push back on this. We do need to bring people along because there are others like, there, like us out there. Um, and we need to work really hard to get more and more people of those people to vote and also organize and also be on social and be loud and vocal and not be ashamed to vote for these sort of policies and not to be ashamed to be voting for labor or greens or tapati maori like we need to be vocal out there because the other side has money and we have to counter it some other way mm -hmm. so if not this election next and the one after that that's it i think that's a, a good place to to leave it thank you so much Kia for joining ora. me everyone thank thanks you kyle a certain link in the summary uh, for this, and that's the Triple the Vote link. Go and join the Triple the Vote campaign. Uh, have a look, uh, see what they say. It's basically go and find two people who you don't think are going to vote and engage with them and try and get them to vote. You know, it really is about organizing. It is about having those conversations with people. It's about uh, spreading that sentiment and, yeah, making sure people have a say in their democracy. That's not all it's about. But right now we're in the middle of an election and, and we're going to do what we can. Uh, so, yeah, get out there, um, vote, get other people to vote. Um, and maybe we'll have a chance. That's been another episode of One of 200. Share, like, subscribe. Um, the Patreon link's in the summary as well. Uh, come and give us a little bit of support. Uh, and we'll be with you next weekend, perhaps not with a current events podcast, but with a live stream for election night. Um, you'll see some of your, your favourite um, guests and co-hosts there, I hope. Uh, and... Yeah, we'll be, we'll be covering the election night coverage um, and laughing or crying with you, uh, depending on the results. We'll catch you then.
Forgetful fucking rain 